You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Romans chapter 4. We'll be in several different passages uh, today, but we'll start in Romans chapter 4. For those of you that haven't been with us, we've been currently going through uh, the book of Genesis, um, verse by verse, and uh, we finished up the the historical account of Abraham, and so we've taken a step away from Genesis for the past couple of weeks, and we've been talking just about our church in general, what we want to be known for as a church, why we are here, our purpose, um, letting that, uh, letting the answers to those questions flow from Scripture. Um, and so we've been kind of stepping back, taking a look at uh, our mission as a church and where we see ourselves going. Um, and so uh, several weeks ago, we talked about uh, just things that we want to be known for as a church. Um, we started our discussion by uh, reminding ourselves we want to be known for a church that loves, uh, that creates an, uh, an environment of fellowship and accountability so that people that visit our church and join our church can find a safe haven, a place of um, acceptance, a place of uh, love and accountability and restoration when one falls. Um, and then also being a church that grows, a church that uh, is faithful to pursue personal sanctification. So we want to be made up of a membership of, of people that are pursuing Christ in their own uh, walk daily uh, through uh, personal worship and, and, and personal Bible study and prayer and um, pursuing those things individually. But then the model that we see in Scripture is that we are called to follow others that are more mature than us. And so being a church that creates an environment of discipleship where uh, older, more mature believers can bring younger believers along with them. Um, being a church that serves, uh, we want to be a place where people can come and join and use their gifts and abilities for God's kingdom we want to be a place where you can learn to use your gifts um, as leadership equips you to do so. Um, and then last week we looked at being a church that plants, a church that uh, grows, uh, pursues the lost, welcomes believers that come into our fellowship from other circumstances uh, that led them to our church, maybe from another church. Ultimately a church that grows, but a church that grows with the intentions of planting. Uh, so we desire to be a small church. We desire to remain a small church because we desire to continually send people out of our church to plant other churches. And so we talked last week about training up leadership uh, that would be capable to do so. And that brings us today to um, our last discussion on, on what we desire to be as a church, and that's a church that hopes. All right, our summary sentence for today, we desire to be a church that is known for trusting in the good promises of God while longing for his return and our resurrection resulting in the present joy and contentment of our members. So we desire to be a church that's known for trusting in, in the good promises of God. And we've, we've been talking about this extensively in our time in Genesis. Um, a, a group of people that trust in God's promises, uh, promises that sustain us on a daily basis, promise that sustains us in the midst of trials and difficulties. We trust in God's good promises to us as his children. Um, but in the midst of doing that on a daily basis, we are longing for his return. And we're longing for it in a way that is applicable to us. We long for our own resurrection. And so while we celebrate the resurrection today of Christ, we also celebrate the future hope of our resurrection because he sets the example. He's the first fruits, as Scripture calls him, the first fruits of coming resurrections. Um, and so everything that we see about Christ's resurrection, his glorified body, um, his return state from the grave, is what we have hope in as well as believers, that we get bodies that are going to be free from sin, free from death, uh, we're going to be in an environment moving forward in the future where we don't have to lift up requests for healings, uh, for surgeries that are coming up. We'll be completely vanquished from those things. Um, and so as a, as a body here at Sovereign Hope, we want to teach uh, each other. We want to teach the kids that are being raised here to be individuals that long for Jesus to come back, uh, longing for our own resurrection. And by looking to the future in that type of way, uh, we want it to create a joy and contentment each day that we live here, waiting for Christ to come back. Um, so we desire to be a church that's known for trusting in God's good promises, longing for his return and our resurrection, resulting in the present joy and contentment for our members. So we're going to break that statement down a little bit today as we look at what Scripture has to say about those things. So starting out, finding joy and contentment through trusting in God's good promises. Trusting in God's good promises. We see promises throughout Scripture um, we see God promising things to his children, um, but ultimately for us to really trust in those promises, it necessitates us um, 
believing that God can be trusted. You know, we can, we can talk about the promises of God. We can talk about God making commitments and, um, and desires being made known for what he wants to do. But ultimately, for us to really trust in God's promises, it necessitates us determining, is he a God that can be trusted? Is he a God that we can put our trust in? Can we believe the promises that we see in Scripture? Um, a God that can be trusted. I mean, that leads us to uh, just what we're celebrating today, the resurrection. Our faith, our faith begins with believing the resurrection. So for us to believe the promises of God, it really necessitates us believing the historical account of the resurrection. Everything about God's plan was, was culminated there with the life of Christ, all the promises of the Old Testament, all the things that we hang our hat on the, in the New Testament moving forward. They all surround what happens during that life of Jesus. Was there a historical Jesus that came that was truly God's son, that truly lived a perfect life, that truly died in place of others, that truly rose from the dead three days later? Is that, a, is that historical account, what we call a, a story of Christ, is that true? Our faith begins with believing the resurrection. We talk about this just about every Easter, but a Christian, the definition of a Christian, can be someone who believes in the physical resurrection of Jesus and lives in light of the implications of that event. A Christian is someone who believes in the physical resurrection of Jesus and lives in light of the implications of that event. We see the resurrection have huge effects on people that were following Jesus at that time. People that were wishy-washy and, and kind of back and forth in their understanding and belief, uh, mixed with doubt. We see a radical transformation after the resurrection of Christ. Um, we see disciples who are now empowered to stand before public audiences to proclaim Christ, uh, knowing that death may ensue from that proclamation. Um, there's a complete removal of the fear of death. Because they've seen the one that they follow conquer death. They've seen the one that they follow escape death, uh, return from death. And so our faith begins with believing the resurrection. For us to be Christians, it necessitates that we believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus and live in light of the implications of that event. So things that I wanted to point out about our faith beginning with the, the resurrection. First of all, salvation requires it. For us to be saved, it necessitates that we believe the resurrection. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, it says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He begins that discussion confessing with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, believing in our heart that God raised him from the dead. You'd be surprised how many people claim to be Christians and, and fail to connect their belief with the historical account of Christ's life and his resurrection. We're in the midst of interviewing people at Trinity right now for staff positions for next year. And I can't tell you how discouraging it has been over the past couple of weeks to receive resume after resume after resume and to read through the first part, which, which simply says, share with me your testimony. Share with me what it means for you to follow Christ. When did you become a Christian? When, when, do, you, when do you consider yourself crossing from death to life? And you get this muddied mixture. God did this for me and I was going through a difficult time and God carried me through it. And, and you're just, you're reading it and you're wondering, I don't know. I, I don't know if this person's a believer. I don't know if they've, they've grasped the significance of, of the historical account of Christ and what he's done for them. Um, it, it seems that they have a mixture of things they've been told and they're mixturing it with, with life experiences. I, I got a resume um, last week towards the end of the week. Um, and for the very first time, um, I, I was I was I was feeling like I was reading a resume of a fellow believer in Christ. I called him immediately. I said, "I got an interview. When can you get here?" I um, mean, probably showed my cards too quickly because um, basically told him like, "Please come. I need you. I need you to come. Like you're the only resume that I've got right now that I'm I'm confident you're a believer." Um, that this guy connects his fact that his faith is tied to the historical Jesus, a Jesus that came to live and to die and to ri rise from the dead for him. For him and for his eternity. Um, 
Paul says that to be a believer, we have to believe in the resurrection of Christ, the God who raised Jesus from the dead. It's also important to point out that Jesus predicted it. If we're talking about promises and and can God be trusted, we're talking about a God who sent his son, who was fully aware that the resurrection was to come. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, I think sometimes we get the, the false assumption that the disciples had no idea that the, the plan was to unfold this way. Um, and, and maybe they didn't recognize it and realize it, but it was certainly not because they weren't taught. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, it says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. You remember the passage that talks about Jesus talking about the temple being torn down and then rebuilding it in three days and how everybody was just amazed at a, at a building that took forever to build, how Jesus could claim to do something like that in three days. And then in that passage, it says that eventually the disciples realized what he meant, that after the resurrection, they realized what he meant. And it says they believed in him. Jesus was teaching the resurrection. Jesus was promising the resurrection. Jesus was telling his followers, I'm going to die, but I'm going to live again in such a way that there was to be no surprise. There was to be no shock. Um, There was to be an anticipation of his return, of his escape of death. And so um, Jesus predicted it, which gives me assurance as an individual who's been called to trust God's promises, that he's always been calling his people to trust his promises. And he's been always delivering on those promises. Jesus throughout his life here teaching that he was to die, teaching that he was to come back to life. Which means I can have hope and assurance today when he calls me to, prom- to trust his promises, that he's a God who fulfills his promises. The resurrection of Christ is a, uh, a thing that was opposed uh, fiercely by his opposition. Uh, those that, that wanted to destroy Christ and wanted to destroy his message, people that felt uh, very uncomfortable with how he was coming in and for their, from their perspective, reinterpreting uh, the Jewish system, the, the Jewish religion, the opposition was very opposed and, and fearful of what the resurrection meant. In John chapter 11, John chapter 11, verse 45. This is after the uh, resurrection of Lazarus. You remember Jesus's friend is sick and Jesus purposefully delays his arrival to to heal Lazarus. Um, Ultimately, he could have shown up and and healed Lazarus before he ever died. Uh, Jesus had been doing that, right? Jesus had been healing people. Um, This instance, he purposefully delays that. Lazarus passes away. He shows up and resurrects Lazarus. And it says in John 11, 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away our place in our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. There's an uproar about Jesus being able to bring people back from the dead. And rather than submitting to it and believing in his power, they want to squash it. They want to exterminate it. They realize that if this continues, if this message continues, if he continues to operate in this manner, everyone's going to turn to him. And it's going to result in chaos from Rome's perspective, and they're going to lose their power. In the next chapter, John chapter 12, verse 9 it says, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. It's a reminder to us that the whole story of Lazarus isn't even about Lazarus, right? It's a tool that God uses to bring people to belief in him. He's, he's inaugurating, he's initiating this understanding of resurrection. 
Um, and, and people are enamored with the fact that, that this individual is escaping death, that this one has the power to bring people back from the dead, and they're believing in him. They're believing in him in the same way that we're called to believe in the God who raised Jesus from the dead. They were believing in the God who had raised Lazarus from the dead. The opposition feared it. In Matthew 28, when word starts to get out of Jesus' own resurrection, Matthew chapter 28, verse 11, Jesus is back from the dead and the, the rumors are circulating. And it says, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. They had to make up something. They had to make up some type of explanation. And we're going to see in a minute because all of the evidence pointed to Christ coming back. All of the evidence pointed to Jesus being alive. And so they began to manipulate the situation, trying to pay off these guards that were responsible, who were supposed to be taking care of the tomb, who were supposed to be taking care of the body. They pay them off to spread this story, to try to squash the rumors of Christ living once again. The early church preached it. It became the focal point of the message that was being communicated by the apostles in Acts chapter 2. Peter's famous sermon uh, at the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. It says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You continue to read this sermon and you see that people are cut to the heart. Uh, verse 37, they heard it. They're cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter faithfully communicating the resurrection as part of the early church. In Acts chapter four, another incident where uh, we see the resurrection being the, the focal point of the message being spread. Acts chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. That was their message. That was what was going forth. They were teaching people that Christ had come back from the dead. In verse 32 of the same chapter, Acts chapter 4 Verse 32, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. This is a passage we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that the, the early church coming together in unity, sharing things with each other. Verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Right? You, couldn't, you couldn't take the, the, the resurrection off their lips as they, as they shared with others this message, as they shared with others the life change that had happened in them. It was tied to the resurrection of Jesus. It was tied to the resurrection of Jesus. In, in thinking about a God who can be trusted, can we believe this story? The, the thing that we celebrate today, is it believable? Is it something that we've just been taught because we grew up in a, in a, in a nation that's founded upon uh, Christian principles and, and Christianity runs rampant in our country? Had we been born in a different country, we would have been raised to believe differently. We would have been raised to believe in a different religious system. How do we know that what we have is true? How do we know the, 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 the story that we celebrate today is actually a story that occurred in history? I want to share with you something that... Um, a professor of mine at Liberty uh, who, uh, when he wasn't in class teaching, was uh, traveling around the world debating uh, skeptics of the, re of the resurrection. By a guy by the name of Gary Habermas. Um, and, he, and his whole ministry was, was founded upon principles that skeptics believed. So, so in, in pushing for the resurrection, in teaching the resurrection, 
He simply stuck with things that skeptics assumed and believed to be true about that story. These are some of the things that even people who are not in church today, people that have taken a look at the resurrection and said, I don't believe in the resurrection. So they're not in church today. They're not celebrating what we celebrate. These are things that they do believe. Okay. They believe that a man named Jesus was executed by crucifixion. Right? That's, that's accepted even by those that, that doubt and disbelieve the resurrection. That a man named Jesus of Nazareth was executed by crucifixion. And that he was buried. That his body was actually uh, was buried and was disposed of. They also believe that his death caused the disciples to despair and lose hope. Right? There, there's no disagreement with skeptics as to whether the disciples tried to fake his death. There, there's genuine belief by skeptics that the disciples despaired and lost hope because the leader of their movement was now gone. Skeptics also believe that Jesus' tomb was discovered empty and that at not long after, disciples had experiences that led them to believe they saw a resurrected Jesus. This isn't what Christians believe. This is what people that don't believe in the resurrection believe. Okay, They believe these facts, that a man named Jesus died on a cross, that he was buried, that his death caused his disciples to lose hope. That his tomb, when, it, when, it, when they went to find his body, his tomb was found to be empty. And that his disciples circulated a belief based on experiences they were having that Jesus had come back from the dead. That's not all they believe, though. They also believe that the disciples were transformed by their experiences into bold proclaimers of Jesus. All right, skeptics believe that the disciples really believed what they were saying. To the point that they were willing to die for it. Skeptics also admit and believe that the resurrection became the center of preaching for the early church. That the message was proclaimed in Jerusalem where Jesus had died and been buried. Right? Like Christianity doesn't find its beginnings because some people leave Jerusalem and travel to the new world here to America. And start telling Indians that a man over here died and came back from the dead. Right? The, the, the message circulated in the actual exact town where Jesus supposedly died and was buried. Skeptics believe that. That the message resulted in the church being born and the day of worship shifting to Sunday. They also admit that skeptics like James, Jesus' brother, and Paul became believers of this movement. So Gary Habermas travels around and debates with individuals. And they don't debate whether these things happened or not. They, they assume this. They believe this. So he stands next to the, the staunchest critic who says, yeah, these things happened. And so now the debate becomes, how do we explain these facts? How do we explain the things that we readily agree about? That a man named Jesus died. That a man named Jesus was buried. That his tomb was found empty. That it had a radical effect on his disciples. They lost hope. And then all of a sudden they become bold proclaimers that are willing to die for this message. That the church is born in the town where he was crucified and buried. The day of worship shifts to Sunday. And some of his biggest skeptics at that time became believers. The conclusions that we're left with is that the body was stolen. That Jesus didn't really die. That his tomb was falsely identified. Or he was resurrected. We could spend time talking about the weaknesses of the first three arguments. But looking at those facts, looking at those facts, the resurrection becomes very believable. Very believable from a historical standpoint. When we consider all these facts, we consider the fact that people all around the world today will gather to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. A movement that started where Jesus was crucified and buried. A movement that the Pharisees from Scripture admit we're doing everything we can to stop it. The message would have been stopped had a body been produced. The message would have been stopped if, if the tomb had been falsely identified. To believe that everybody went to the wrong tomb is to, to believe something probably more impossible than the belief of a resurrection. To believe that Jesus didn't die when Romans were professional killers, professional killers in crucifixion. To believe that a beaten and bruised Jesus could proclaim this is the body that you get to look forward to would have been a disgrace to the, to the disciples. Um, and to believe that the body was stolen is to also believe that somebody would have a motive to steal it. Um, and then at some point would be willing and readily uh, 
desiring to admit to that scam when their life was put on the line, and yet we see disciple after disciple willing to perish, willing to, to perish from an earthly standpoint, to die for this resurrection story they were believing in. So bringing ourselves back to what we're, what we're looking at, we want to be a church that believes in God's good promises, a church that starts by believing in the promise that Jesus was going to die for us and that he was going to be raised from the dead. And in looking at it from a historical standpoint, we see that, that we have every right and every reason to believe that Christ has been raised from the dead, which then gives us reason to, pr- to trust the other promises that God has given us, promises that are good for us. I think all of God's promises can probably be wrapped up and uh, summarized in, in the truth of what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, um, that God has good intent for those that belong to him. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For, who, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. We want to be a church that trusts in God's good promises. He is a God that can be trusted. He's a God who raised Jesus from the dead. And he's a God who makes promises to us that as his children, he has only good intent for us, which means everything that happens in our life is turned for good. It does not assume and nor should we claim that everything that happens in our life is good, right? We don't want to celebrate bad things that happen to our life and say that somehow we're to define those things as good. The hope and the promise is that God uses those things for good purposes in the life of his children. A church that trusts in the promises of God, but a church that also longs for Christ's return. We long for Christ's return, and that's the hope of today, is that because Jesus is raised from the dead, because Jesus departed from this earth, there was a message left. A message that the angels came up and validated to the disciples who continued to stand there and wait. That Jesus is coming back. That he's coming in the same way that he left. That he's coming in bodily form. To rule and reign here on this earth. In longing for Christ's return. We are waiting for the return of the resurrected. For the resurrected Jesus. Um, and in doing so it helps define us as Christians. Waiting for the return of the resurrected Jesus. Helps define us as Christians. In 1 Thessalonians. Chapter 1 verse 10. Paul is, is basically. With this church at Thessalonica. He's, he's telling them the, the reputation. He's telling them the testimony. That he has heard of them. It says, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of the reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. When we studied Thessalonians here, we went through chapter one and we talked about how all of chapter one is Paul praising this church for being true believers. He praises them for their response to God's word and how they've responded to the gospel. And he talks about the fact that one of the ways that I know you're a Christian is because you're anxiously waiting and longing for the resurrected Jesus to return. Hebrews chapter 9, another passage that ties our Christianity to the return of Christ. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Being a Christian means believing in the resurrection of Jesus. Truly believing what we celebrate today. Believing that the facts point to a raised Christ. But then taking that belief, taking that truth and going further with it and believing that Christ is coming back one day. Right. We don't just believe that Jesus came back from the dead. We believe that he's coming back to this earth one day. It defines us as Christians. The scriptures point us to believe these things. Secondly, waiting faithfully for the return of Jesus requires that we be informed. As believers today, we celebrate the the resurrection of Jesus. If we're true believers, we also wait for Jesus to come back. Which oftentimes becomes a lot more uncertain as to the details of what that looks like, right? We can, we can talk about Jesus' resurrection. We can talk about the events surrounding it. 
But to then talk about what it looks like for Jesus to come back, it becomes a lot more confusing because we don't have a ton of details. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Paul had this great concern with the believers there that they would be misinformed about Jesus coming back and that their hope would be shaken because uh, alarmists would come on the scene and try to uh, twist and, and turn and pervert what they understood about Jesus coming back and, and cause unnecessary alarm in them. And Paul was very concerned about the, the early church understanding and grasping what it meant for Jesus to come back. If you've got your Bibles, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to walk through this passage together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. As you're doing this, um, one of my favorite traditions that we have as, as a family is um, typically around Good Friday, uh, Easter weekend, our family visits the uh, the graves of family members um, that we are hoping to see again one day. Um, and we use it as a means to teach our kids about the resurrection, to te- teach our kids both the resurrection and the return of Christ. We want them to see that together. We want them to understand what we're celebrating today, that Jesus came back from the dead. But we also want to connect it with the hope of the return of Jesus like we see in Scripture. And so we visit different family members. Uh, we, we show our kids where they're buried. Um, we share stories with them because for our kids, they didn't know Granny and Granddaddy. They didn't know Granny Griffin. Um, they didn't know Papa. I mean, we had to clarify which Papa we were talking about because they actually have a Papa. And, and my Papa's the one that we visited their graveside. And so we share stories with them. And when we tell them why they were endearing to us, why we loved them as our grandparents and why we long to see them once again. And so we're telling AJ and Abram and um, Maggie and Jack about our loved ones that we long to see again. Because my hope is that as we start to bury other people in our family, they too will connect the fact that a raised Jesus means we get to see these people again. That we have that hope. And that's what Paul connects the resurrection with in 1 Thessalonians 4. In verse 13, he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. In my notes, I put, we need to study the return of Christ because a lack of knowledge causes us to react incorrectly to our circumstances. By studying the return of Christ, we have a correct knowledge so that when we face death, we face it with hope. Paul says, Don't be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. In my notes I put, we have hope because of the resurrection. What Paul is telling us here is that resurrections have started. We will see believers again. That Christ is the inauguration of the resurrection that we look forward to. He's the first of many to come. The fact that we will see other believers again is a hope extended to believers here in this passage. Verse 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. There's clarity here in what's being said. It's come directly from God. This isn't Paul's uh, attempt to speculate about what happens in the future. He says, I'm declaring to you what comes from God himself. That those who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. There's some things that we know for certain. There's clarity about Jesus returning. First of all, we can see that some Christians will live until Jesus comes. That there will be people that live until Jesus comes back. Christians. There'll be Christians on this earth. The encouragement there is that no president, no world leader can ever extinguish the church. No laws can be written that makes Christianity illegal to where people will respond and walk away from the faith. There will always be Christians on this earth until Jesus comes back. That's encouraging. That's encouraging. It means the church will always go forth. However long the Lord tarries, the church will continue to press on. 
so that those who are alive, who are left, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Dead Christians will be raised first. There was a confusion here amongst the, the early church. Remember, they're, they're the, the first generation, so Jesus is supposed to come back, and so they're waiting and thinking, this is going to happen in my lifetime, and then granddad dies, and, and, and grandma dies, and, and maybe mom and dad die, and, and then the, the despair starts to set in. What about them? Like, we're still waiting for Jesus to come back, and he hasn't come back yet. W- what happens to those that have already died? And, and the assurance comes that, that there's, a, there's a future for them. They come with Jesus, right? They come with Jesus, and they too will be raised to life, and they too will get new bodies. Jesus is, is communicated here in a way that he descends with authority. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. As Christians, we'll meet the Lord in the air and we will exist with him forever after this takes place. But I said Paul tells you that he declares what what comes from God. And we see Jesus talking about this very similarly in John chapter 5. The authority that he's going to come with. In John chapter 5 verse 19. It says, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. The father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. So Jesus is talking about the future judgment that comes. He says in verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus gives a more fuller picture here than what Paul even gives. Paul gives the Christian perspective. Jesus comes back. He's bringing dead Christians with him. Their bodies will be raised to life and they'll be reunited with their souls and they'll be transformed to be like Jesus. And those that are alive that are Christians, they're going to experience the same thing. Um, It's going to be a great reunion in the sky. And, And we're to encourage each other with these words, Paul says. Encourage each other. But Jesus gives a more fuller picture here and he says, and the people that are dead that don't believe in Jesus, they too will be raised. But they're going to be raised to judgment. They're going to be raised to punishment. They're not going to be raised to reunite with Christ in the air. They're not going to be with Christ forever. Instead, because of their rejection of his resurrection, they are going to be raised to judgment. Jesus comes with that type of authority. The Jesus that we celebrate today as a Jesus that's been raised from the dead. So we long for Christ's return as Christians But in longing for him, we long because we too realize we are going to experience personal resurrection ourselves. Again, and I've said this already, we celebrate Jesus' resurrection today. And we celebrate it in such a way because it points us to our own resurrection. A resurrection that we are already experiencing. The Bible talks about us experiencing a spiritual resurrection even now. In Romans chapter 6 verse 4. This is something that's already begun in our life. It says in verse 4 of Romans 6, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Jesus, through our salvation, is creating uh, new creatures out of us. We're walking in newness of life. We've been raised to a new mindset Because the Holy Spirit indwells us. In Romans chapter 8 verse 10. Romans chapter 8 verse 10 it says. 
But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So the, so the hope here for believers is that if we're Christians, the Holy Spirit creates new desires in us so that we live as new people. Even though we wait for that future resurrection, there's a spiritual renewal that's already happened in, in those of us that have put our faith in the raised Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 gives us a, a further picture of this. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So there's this spiritual resurrection, but we also anticipate a physical resurrection at Christ's return. So while we're being made new, the Bible talks about, we have yet to be fully renewed in our salvation romans eight twenty three, <clears throat> and not only the creation but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies so paul says as great as it is to have the holy spirit living inside of us as great as it is to have that spiritual resurrection taking place where we're being made new and we're being sanctified and we're becoming more holy and less sinful. As great as that is, we long, we long for the day where we're set free from sin and death. He says we wait for the redemption of our bodies. I wrote down the wrong verse for that one. Let me go to 15 verse 21. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 21 and 22. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. There's some truth communicated to us in the, in the scriptures about our, our bodies that are to come. First of all, we get the same bodies, but they're improved bodies. Um, we get the same bodies, but they're improved bodies. Skipping down in 1 Corinthians 15 to verse 35 but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one, of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star and glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. There's similarities to, to what we're going to experience one day with our bodies. They're the same bodies, but they're different. They're improved. They don't, they don't experience death. They don't experience sin. But we're also told in Philippians 3 that they will be made like Christ's glorified body. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 through 21, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savor, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. All right, so we've seen that we want to be a church that trusts in God's good promises, that starts with us believing in the resurrection, the promise that Jesus would be raised to life. It then gives us confidence to believe all the other promises that God gives us. We also want to be a church that longs for Jesus to come back, the resurrected Jesus, the raised Jesus, the Jesus that escaped death, that ascended into heaven, the Jesus that will return one day. We also want to be people that, that long for our own personal resurrection. We look forward to the day that we're reunited with other believers and we join them in the air with glorified bodies that are free from sin and death. So the implications for us, uh, for our joy and contentment today Number one, the return of the resurrected Christ 
combined with my own resurrection, promises me things that are better than anything this world can offer. As Christians, we believe that Jesus has returned from the dead. It gives us hope for our own resurrection. And the fact that he's coming back reminds us that it's better than anything this world has to offer. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 32, talking about whether the resurrection happened or not, Paul says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The idea there is that if there's nothing after, if there's nothing after this life, if we die and that's it, then we should spend every waking minute enjoying this life to the fullest. But if there's something beyond this life, then it necessitates we take this life very seriously because it affects the life to come. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things on this earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter reminds us as well that the the things that we long for are better than what this world offers. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So the return of Christ, our own resurrection, promises us things that are better than what this world can offer. But secondly, while Jesus will return to judge, my faith in him today assures me that I need not fear death, or the judgment to come because I have entrusted myself to the one who holds the keys to both. Hebrews chapter 2 talks about us escaping the fear of death as believers because of what Christ has done by being raised from the dead. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And then one of my favorite verses in Scripture is Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he, talking about Jesus, laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. I mean, you get this picture here of Jesus who, who's talking about the significance of his resurrection. He says, you don't have to fear anything anymore because I hold the keys to the things that you would be scared of most. He says, since Adam and Eve committed sin in the Garden of Eden, there's always been this, this fear of death. Adam lived long, but he died, as we learned in the book of Genesis. And everyone after him, including Methuselah, who lives the longest, and he dies. And we see death after death after death. And we see the disciples before the resurrection who were fearful of death, right? Peter denies Jesus and says, I don't know him. I don't want anything to do with him. Don't arrest me. Don't kill me. And then they're radically changed. They're radically changed. Even skeptics see it. Even skeptics believe that the disciples radically changed after the circulation of the resurrection. Because Jesus is standing there and he's holding the keys to death and judgment. And he says, you don't have to fear anything. Because you're on my side. You follow me. And I have the things that would scare you most. And I control them. I control them. He frees us from the fear of death. He frees us from that slavery. Because he conquers death. So the application that I want to leave you with today. On this Easter morning is. Do you believe in the resurrected Christ who is to return It's what it means to be a Christian. In John chapter 11, going back to that same passage with Lazarus' resurrection, Jesus, in conversing with Mary and Martha, says in verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, 
yet shall he live. How do we know that? Because Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4, they're coming back. They're coming back with Jesus. They get their bodies back, right? So Jesus says, even if you live long enough to die and you don't see my return, you will live. Yet shall he live and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. And that's my prayer for all of us this morning is that we would believe in the raised Christ, that he was raised from the dead uh, 2000 years ago. And all the evidence points to that. So we don't have to, to gather this morning in, in, in hope that, that we're right about it. Because all the evidence points to it. And yet we've seen that even when the evidence points to it, you have people like the Pharisees who want to discount it and disprove it and make up stories to make themselves feel better about it. Why? Because if Jesus comes back from the dead, then Jesus has the right to rule and reign and to judge. That's what Jesus is presented as, as the raised judge who has all the authority. And what's comforting to us as believers is if we believe in the resurrected Christ, if we're longing for his return, then we have nothing to fear this morning. We celebrate, we leave today celebrating because he holds the keys to death in Hades and he controls it all for our good. He's made good promises to his children. We can cling to those as we wait for him to come back. The raised Jesus who's defeated death for us, who will bring with us all of our loved ones so we can spend eternity with him. Let's pray together. Father, we, we come to you this morning and we praise you and thank you for the opportunity to celebrate the resurrection. God, we are thankful for Jesus Christ who came and lived perfectly for us, died in our place, and was raised to life. Father, we praise you and thank you that we can sit here this morning uh, with many of us attending funerals of loved ones that we have lost. And we can sit here and take comfort in the fact that we will be reunited with them one day. Not because they're good people and not because we miss them a lot. We will be with them again because they have been saved by you. And they are dwelling with you right now, longing and waiting to be reunited with their bodies. Father, we're thankful that as believers we can leave here today knowing that we don't face anything without your promises of good intent. That you are a God who possesses all the power that you're not a God who answers to Satan or demons or any other evil force, that you are a God who controls everything, that you have all the keys, you have all the authority. And God, I pray that we would take comfort in the fact that as individuals who have believed in your resurrection, have put our faith and trust in you, that we are secure in all of your good promises. Father, I pray that we'd be people that are known for that here at Sovereign Hope that we would be people who communicate the resurrection to others so that when you do return and you raise people to both eternal life and to eternal death, that we are faithful to lead people to the resurrection of eternal life. Help us to take the message of Christ's resurrection to others so they too can long for the return of Christ in their own resurrection. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.